hundreds of millions of these soldiers that are going to go against God's people, Israel, are going to be slaughtered. There's going to be so much blood. The ground is going to be so soaked with human blood that the Bible says that the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Beaufort, South Carolina's Community Bible Church. We're in chapter 14 of our study of the book of Revelation. In a message entitled, The Wrath of God on Earth, Dr. Brogy has been looking at the passage in verses 14 through 20 that talk about the reapers that will show up at the end times to gather a harvest of souls. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy ties this account to the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, in which Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but was then followed by an enemy who sowed tares among the wheat. The Lord is going to come back and he's going to separate the saved from the lost, those who profess the Lord and say they are Christians and those who really possess the Lord and are Christians. Jesus tells us that when he interprets the parable for his disciples, notice, listen from Matthew 13, then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world. And for, as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So the Lord allows both to grow together until the time of the harvest when they some are gathered and placed in the barn and others are gathered and burned at the end of the age in the lake of fire. And again, he's just introducing it to us, but he's going to expound on it far more in the book. Look at verse 15 now. We're told, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Circle that word, ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now this phrase, the earth was reaped, if you ponder its meaning, it's one of the most tragic statements in all of the Bible. Now, again, the details are going to be given to us in Revelation chapter 16. It will begin with terrible sores that will be covering men's bodies. Then the oceans will be filled with blood and all the sea life will die. Then all the rivers and springs likewise will become blood. Then the sun's heat will intensify and scorch the skin of men and then the world will be plunged into a time of darkness. And then finally, the Euphrates River will be dried up. And demons 
will lure the kings of this world up a dry riverbed to a place called Harmageddon, where the troops of the world will gather together to come against God's Messiah. But right now, the time is perfect. Why? Because the earth is ripe. And he uses a specific word for ripe that is describing wheat that is overripe, almost at the point of beginning to rot. So when God moves in with judgment, it's not a minute too late. He could have acted sooner, but he didn't. Sometimes people say, Pastor, I wish Jesus would come back. I wish he would too. And they say, well, why doesn't God do something? He is doing something. The world's not falling apart. It's coming together. He is orchestrating the events for the return of his son from heaven. But he hasn't come back yet because the time is not yet right. Now, it doesn't mean that he's not coming back to judge. He will, but he will come at just the right time. The fact that he comes with a sickle reminds us he is just. The fact that he waits until it is virtually overripe shows God's mercy, God's love, God's long-suffering. And so the Apostle John first warns us God's wrath is coming. It will come from Jesus, and it will come on time. Unless anyone be deluded, he goes on now in verses 17 to 19 to underscore that God's wrath is certain. And to accentuate the absolute certainty of this wrath, he first teaches us that God's wrath comes with divine authority. It comes with divine authority. Now we read in verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Now, in verses 14 through 16, we saw the imagery of grain. But now in verses 17 through 19, we see the imagery of grapes. The picture may change. The event is the same. And John is giving us another picture, again, to underscore how absolutely certain that this is going to happen. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. This is angel number five. I've got five written in my Bible over this angel. And again, he comes out of the temple. Among other things, it reminds us he is coming from the throne room of God, and he is coming with absolute authority. And notice, too, that this angel comes with a sharp sickle that underscores the absolute severity of this judgment that is going to come. So the Lord sends out his angel with this sharp sickle because he, through angels, is going to differentiate the wheat from the tares. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord knows those who are his. I hope he knows you today. He knows you in a creative way, but does he know you in a born-again, blood-bought way? He wants to. And so with absolute authority and certainty, God will execute this judgment. Again, the Son uses angels to complete this judgment. Further in verse 18, emphasizing once again the authority, then another angel. That's number six. You might want to write that over him. Then another angel the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. 
Now, if you remember in John 15, 1, Jesus described himself as the true vine, and those who know him are connected to him as branches. And if you remember in John 15, among other things, he describes those who have a superficial attachment to him, who are not really his own, and they are broken off and thrown into the fire and burned, and those who are rightly related to him, who have truly, genuinely been saved. Well, John, the same apostle who records John 15 for us, here writes of the vine of the earth. He's describing those who are not attached to the Lord Jesus, but to those who are attached to the Antichrist. And this sixth angel, if you remember, the one with fire at the altar, we met him all the way back in chapter 8. He is the one who has power over fire. Put out in the margin next to this verse, Revelation 8 and verse 7. You can go back and read it. And if you remember, this is the angel who is associated with those saints who are martyred during the time of the great tribulation. They believe on the Lord Jesus through the preaching of the 144,000 or the two witnesses up to this point, and they are martyred there in Revelation 8. And there they are in heaven, and they're pleading with God, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging the blood on those who dwell on the earth? And now the prayer of these martyrs that the Bible describes as smoke going up as a sweet aroma into the presence of God, now their prayer is answered for her grapes are ripe. And again, it's the same word. They're long overdue. They're ready to burst. And God's wrath breaks in. So it comes with divine authority out of the very throne room of God. But secondly, God's wrath also comes with decisive urgency. It's coming with decisive urgency. We read now in verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. By the way, angels, I think you know by now, do not simply function as servants sent out to render service, Hebrews 1 says, to those who will inherit salvation, but they also are ministers of God's judgment to an unbelieving world. And God's justice demands his wrath, and that it be carried out in full payment. And this verse will underscore, among other things, the vindication of those tribulation saints, those who are abused and have, for the most part, their heads cut off, and really not just the tribulation saints, but the blood of all the martyrs from Abel to Zechariah, anyone who has given his life for Christ. And he uses imagery here of a wine press of the wrath of God. Some of you are with me in Nazareth, and that's one place we always go. We're going to, I think, seven or eight new places, God willing, on this next trip. But we're in Nazareth, and there was a actual first century wine press from the day of Christ. And people would stomp with their feet. They, the, the grapes, unlike olives, would not go through a press because you want to do it with your feet because you don't want to crush the seed and ruin the, the juice. And they would crush it, and they would go through a little trough, and then it would be gathered like in a big rock bowl beneath. It was all carved out of stone. And God is giving a picture here of the blood of God's saints 
that is going to be vindicated. And so here is this angel, and he swings his sickle. And this imagery of God's wrath like a wine press is used all the way through Scripture. For instance, in Isaiah 63, speaking of this same future time, I've trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. Likewise, Joel, speaking of the same future time frame, writes, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. You might want to put out in the margin next to this verse in Revelation, Revelation 19, 15. Let me read that to you. From his mouth, this is Jesus coming back. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. This vineyard has produced the wrong kind of fruit and now they meet God in his wrath and these grapes are stomped and they vividly picture the splattered blood of those innocent saints who are destroyed by the wicked ones of that day. Finally and quickly, God's wrath is coming. It is coming for certain. Finally, God's wrath, when it comes, it will indeed be complete. God's wrath is complete. And verse 20 underscores that truth. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Now, don't get lost in these two judgments, these two pictures of judgment. Remember, we're in this parenthetical section, 10 to 14, that reviews and also previews. He gives two different harvests to describe what is yet to unfold. And this judgment is describing not just physical death, but ultimately what will turn into eternal death in the lake of fire. The first harvest, the harvest of grain that we just studied in verses 14 through 16, that's going to unfold in the bold judgments. But then this second harvest, it's going to unfold in what we typically refer to as the battle of Armageddon. And that will usher in Christ's second coming from heaven, where he will finally rule and reign for a thousand years. Now, he's just previewing it here, and he's going to detail it in chapters 15 through 19. But for now, let's get a sneak preview of what, in a popular way, we call the Battle of Armageddon. Maybe the War of Armageddon or the Campaign of Armageddon would be better. And it's going to result in one huge judgment where hundreds of millions of people are slaughtered. And I learned from verse 22 things, two truths about this coming judgment of wrath. One, that God's wrath runs deep. It runs deep. We're again told in verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles. Now, when we come to chapter 16, this battle will be detailed, and he'll hit it hard there, and he'll touch on it again. But let me just say for right now, in the traditional sense, there's no such thing as the Battle of Armageddon. In fact, there's no place called the Valley of Armageddon. 
Now, there is a place called Har Megiddo. Har means hill or mount, or sometimes it's called Mount Megiddo. It's 60 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. In fact, let's get a sneak preview, all right? You want a sneak preview? Say amen, all right? At least you're listening. Go to chapter 16, verse 12, just over a few pages. Chapter 16, verse 12, and listen to what God says about this coming time. We'll study it in great detail. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. This war is going to result in a slaughter that we're reading about here in Revelation 14. Now look at verse 16 of chapter 16. And they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Ha-Megedon. Hundreds of millions of troops we're going to see are going to begin gathering at this place called Megiddo to form a march all the way to Jerusalem. And here you will find one of the most famous battlefields in all the world. And in a moment's time, hundreds of millions of these soldiers that are going to go against God's people, Israel, are going to be slaughtered. And so as we go back to chapter 14, there's going to be so much blood, the ground is going to be so soaked with human blood that the Bible says that the blood will be up to the horse's bridles. Now, if you've ever seen a group of horses run on a muddy field, you see that mud just kicked up by their hoofs all the way up to their bridles. What he is giving us here is a picture of ground that is so soaked with human blood that as the horses go through, the blood comes all the way up to their bridles. Now, we'll come to that. But I want you to see that this wrath runs deep as given through this imagery, but also God's wrath runs wide. Let's read all of verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles. Notice, for a distance of 200 miles. Now, sometimes in even modern uh, advertisements for Israel, they'll say, come see Israel from Dan to Beersheba. That means from the top of Israel to the bottom of Israel. It's a distance of 200 miles. And that's how long this river of blood will be. It's a very sobering picture that God will walk over his enemies in the winepress of his wrath they will not stand a chance that it will be swept away in a moment. And their hatred against Israel on this occasion will result in a wholesale, unpre unprecedented slaughter of human life. Now, interesting, God will spare the horses because <laughs> God has compassion on the animals, does he? We'll see that. Now, here's the Antichrist and his followers, and they come to the apex of hatred against Jesus. And they gather all the troops of the world, and they're deceived by these demon spirits to come, as if they can somehow conquer the living God, and they're on a march to Jerusalem, and Jesus steps in. And it will ultimately translate, as we will see, from this earthly wrath 
to this eternal wrath. Now, this is not what God is just saying for the future. He is writing to seven churches that have poured over this manuscript, and thousands and millions of Christians have read the Revelation for nearly 2,000 years. This is also what God is saying to his people today. So how are we going to apply this text? Let me suggest a couple of applications as we close. Number one, do not think that people are getting away with their sin because God has not judged it yet. That's what a lot of people think. Oh, they're just getting away with it. But it is payday someday. Just because he hasn't judged it yet doesn't mean that they're getting away with it. If you remember, God told Abraham on one occasion that he had not yet judged the Amorites. And God said to Abraham this. Let me read to you Genesis 15, 13. Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. God is giving Abraham a a brief timeline of future events. And then in verse 16 of chapter 15, he said, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. They're going to be in Egypt for 400 years. That's exactly how long they were down there. For the sin of the Amorites, he says, has not yet reached its full measure. Rather than immediately wipe out the Amorites, God gives them 400 years. God is giving them a chance to repent. And maybe some did repent during that 400 years. But by the time the 400 years are over, they are all confirmed wicked unbelievers. And some of the vile things they did, I don't even want to mention. They had not escaped God's notice any more than the Ninevites, who in the mercy of God, at least the first time, did repent. God had not forgotten. The Amorite in Abraham's day inhabited the promised land. They were the chief people among the Canaanites, and their iniquity had reached a boiling point, and God said, enough is enough, and it was over. But God was keeping track. He keeps a very fine art measure, and it was God's love and mercy and hesed that was allowing him to hold back his wrath. But here in the end of time, there's coming a day. God, all the way through the revelation, all these judgments that are coming on the earth, and God is giving man an opportunity to repent, to repent, to repent, to repent. And then finally, as we'll see in the 15th and 16th chapters, he'll say, in essence, enough is enough. It's time, Lord Jesus. So don't let the slowness of God's judgment fool you to think that God A, is not judging sin now because there's an expression of his wrath, Romans 1, that is coming on the earth. But don't let you, don't think for a moment that it's not going to come. God is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Second, we should take the Great Commission seriously and allow God to use us to warn men and women to flee the coming wrath. We need to take the Great Commission seriously. As you go, share the gospel. Preach the gospel to all creation. Win people to Jesus. Just ask yourself, and I can't answer it for you, but this week, the last seven days, through your little set of human eyes, did you look at anyone, a single person, with a sense of concern and compassion for where they might spend eternity. 
For some of us, the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years. And we don't even invite someone to church, much less share the gospel with them. Look, there's a horrible harvest of wrath that is coming. And there's one thing that we will not do in heaven that we do today. There's a lot of things we do today we'll do in heaven, but there's one thing we won't do. And there'll be no one to win to Christ in heaven. So don't get discouraged by the evil that is going. It seems with every month that goes by, it just seems to grow. And it's like, what's next? God is on his throne. But there's coming a time when that cup is going to be filled, the cup of iniquity, to the very brim, and it will overflow, and God will send his son back. Third and finally, today, the Bible teaches, is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late for you. Your only hope is the shed blood of Christ. If you're here today and say, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'll go. I think I'll go to heaven, and you don't know. If the Spirit hasn't borne witness to you that you've become a child of God, that you are a blood-bought, born-again Christian, there's nothing more important than you can get fixed. You should come to meet the pastor, or even better today, call on Jesus to save you. Today is a day Tomorrow will be too late. And every time God who says today is today, the day, and we say, no, not today, God, later, not today, later, your heart doesn't get softer. It gets harder, and there can come a time when you will put the final callus on your heart where you cannot say yes to the spirit of truth. Every time you tell the spirit of truth who is poking at your heart to receive Jesus, no, you're telling him he's a liar and that he doesn't know what is best for you. And you can't come to Jesus apart from his help. Today is the day to be saved when you hear the message Don't harden your heart. Why don't you put your faith, why don't you put your trust where God put your sin on Christ? Call on him and he will receive you today. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you today for the salvation that is offered to men. We know that that door will be shut for those who live in an age we call the church age where the gospel is prevalent, where men have heard the gospel. Your word has revealed and made it clear to us that it's impossible to receive Jesus during the tribulation if we've heard it beforehand. But thank you for those millions who have never heard the gospel who will be saved during that time. But I pray today for someone within the sound of my voice that they would call upon the Lord Jesus in faith, that they would know that he paid it all, that they would say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, many have already crossed that line that are here today. We're sitting on one of our campuses or live streaming through the internet or our website or Facebook. And they know you and they love you. But maybe some of us, Father, as you know, have been a little bit apathetic. And you warned us that at the end of time that men's hearts would grow cold. Don't let us be a part of that mass of cold-hearted believers. Keep our hearts warm and tender and passionate for Jesus. 
Help us in this new week to care for someone's soul, to tell them about your son who has come. We thank you and love you, our Father, that someone cared enough to tell us. May we be good stewards of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's study from Revelation 14, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program REV40. Time is drawing ever nearer for Christ's return. At Search the Scriptures, we are committed to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a world that desperately needs Him. Would you join us in our mission? For information on how you can help, click the Give button at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or on our Search the Scriptures app. You can also call us at 877-787-7478 and ask about becoming an STS supporter. Tomorrow we move into Revelation 15 and a vision before the bulls. Join us then as we search the scriptures.